and Tim Burton. Welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel. It's a podcast where usually a comedian who has never read a Marvel comic book before in their life watches a Marvel movie or TV show and then quizzes someone else. This person is a Marvel expert. This person was taught to read with Marvel comics. This edition is a DC edition um, as we head on to look at the 1989 Batman movie. Um, welcome to a very special MVM. My name is Rob Halden. I'm a comedian, I'm a writer, and I was also um, taught to read with uh, Marvel and DC Comics. Um, and I am the uh, the comic book expert in this equation, and I'm joined as ever by a man who's normally powered exclusively by ignorance. This time, the ignorance is slightly less. It's Will Preston. This is my episode, people. I'm a Batman <laughs> fan. I've read my fair share of Batman comics, but I'm very sure Rob has read way more than me. So the dynamic still stands. The formula I was going to say stands. the format's out the window in this one. Oh no, the format's no, the format's slightly looking outside the window at this point. It's not out of it just yet. We've looked at we we did a mega episode yeah. all about the 1970s Superman movie. Um, and the birth of the superhero movie and the birth of the superhero comic, the superhero concept in the comic book. That was a, a perfect melding because without those two elements, Marvel Comics doesn't exist um, and Marvel movies don't exist. Well, this one is a little similar. Ever since we did that, we've been badgered by our wonderful listeners. When are you going to look at Batman? When are you going to look at Batman? And there's a massive reason to do that because as is pointed out by an awful lot of people who who, who listen to this show, once you get the 1989 Batman, then superhero movies become franchises that just keep coming out in a way that did not happen with Superman. It invented the Superman, uh, sorry, the superhero movie, but it didn't result in the 90s and the 2000s in the same way that this movie does. They've been asking when to do it. Will's been asking me since day one, when are we going to do it? Well, Michael Keaton is back in the cowl. He's back in the cape, <laughs> back on cinemas. That's the perfect time to to step outside of Marvel and look at this movie. Coming up on the show, we go behind the scenes on the making of the superhero movie that changed it all. We go behind the page on the creation of Batman and dive into the history of the character. We'll explore trivia about the Joker, about Harvey Dent, the Batmobile, the Batcave, the Batwing, the origins of just how terrible the Joker can be, um, and indeed, everything that Batman has been through on his journey to this movie. It's all to come. Don't go anywhere. Um, and you're like a kid at Christmas, aren't you, today? Oh, I have been waiting for this. I Look, I, I we'll get on to the relevant sections when we talk about this film, but I love it. I love this film. I love Batman. This is This is all about me today. <laughs> it's not all about Batman. It's all about Winnie P. Um, <laughs> but this is still a Marvel podcast. Um, it's it's important that we have some of this um, context to fully understand how did the MCU get going? How did Marvel Studios become what it is today? Marvel Studios and the MCU would not be here without this blockbuster popular movie, um, without everything it did in terms of toys and video games and merchandise. And Marvel wouldn't be, exist as a comic book company 
without that one-two punch of Superman and Batman. That's what leads the charge in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and it's because of those that the superhero concept um, isn't just a one-and-done-with-Superman. It becomes something that can be replicated by other comic book companies, and that's how we eventually get Captain America, we get Namor the Submariner, and then we, of course, get the uh, Marvel comics in the 1960s. We're not done, however, with Marvel, because we'll be back looking at Marvel next, in the very next episode. We're going to let you know about that at the end of this show. We're going to head back to the Marvel Universe in a big way to explore an MCU project, or is it something that listeners have been clamoring for us to cover um, for uh, quite a while now. In fact, since we started, since the very first uh, year of Marvel vs. Marvel, we'll have got all that for you at the very end of the show. The yin and the yang of the Marvel experience, as we said, the format is slightly broken. Normally, I know all, and I still know, I have to say, pretty much all the comic book history and trivia knowledge. And normally, Will Preston knows nothing, but that's not the case in this episode. Um, Batman has been a huge part of his life. And for so many, many, many people that are not comic book readers, Batman can still and has still been a huge part of their lives through toys, cartoons, TV shows... Through reading occasional comics, you know, that, that might not consider themselves like a comic book fan or reader, but as a kid, they maybe read, read a lot of um, of, uh, of DC Comics. So, Will, to step into your mind then, mm. um, and to go to 1989 when this movie comes out... Maybe yeah. that's not a good. Maybe that's not a good one. When did you first experience this movie? Maybe that's a better idea. Uh, I know I watched it when we lived in our first house, and we moved uh, mid, must have, no, early, very early nineties, so nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three. So I must have been at, at most five years old when I first saw this film. I was very young, and looking back on it, I as I, I thank I thank my parents. For getting me the film on VHS, that was good. But looking back, I was like, I should not have watched that film as a young kid. It's a bit dark. You think they, you think they got it for you on VHS when the, you were? Oh yeah, young? They, well they they yeah they they got they got it because you know because I like Batman because I'm mm. young and you know Batman is happening and Batman. To be honest, has been such a perennial figure uh, for children. I think is is such a, such such is long lasting. I mean, we're, uh, next decade we're going to come up to possibly a hundred years of Batman. Mm. Uh, and Superman, which is crazy, but yeah, um, I I remember he, he it was like he's always been there. Batman, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, has always been there. I remember watching the 1960s TV show as well and loving that. I still do. I've got the but I got the bootleg DVD set of the entire show. Uh, I think, as we discussed with the Superman episode. Mm. Because this country and our generation didn't have that George Reeves Superman TV show mm. on repeats growing up, Superman had less of an impact to, for our generation in this country yeah. and generations before us than, than Batman did. Batman, because of the cartoons and the TV series, I think was much more present, wasn't he, than... Than Superman was. Oh, incredibly! I mean, it's, okay. Super, the nineteen seventy eight Superman film, and uh, of course, its sequel, uh, not the not the last two, did have a great effect in this country. You know, we knew about it, we loved it, but I think Batman, especially the sixties series, had had a, a massive impact as well as this film. And not only that, there was also uh, to go hand in hand with it was the uh, nine the early nineties Bruce Tim animated series. 
which mm. I absolutely <clears throat> inhaled as a child. I adored that series, uh, and I still do. I still think it's a great series. But that, of course, felt like a nice little companion piece to the 1989 Tim Burton film. So my experience of it is it was inescapable for me, and I loved it. I think I'm going to let your parents off the hook here. here's what what i think happened and i think this is how i first saw the movie as well because my parents were not big renters of movies because they cost money Mm. um 1990 christmas day 1991 the bbc shows the batman movie Ah, that could have been it and i i would imagine that and it's an edited version um because it's not shown you know super late at night it's Mm. edited so i i think that's uh, that's probably what you first witnessed. It could have been um, that. Especially if it was around that time frame. I imagine it was exactly the same for me as well. Mm. Um, I, I have, I do have strong memories of very much looking forward to seeing it at Christmas. Yeah. I, I, it's a little blurry so whether it was the first time for me, but I, I think it must have been. We didn't rent movies much when I was a kid, unless it was cheap cartoons here and there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Renting a new movie, I'm I'm not sure about that. Um, I also have memories of um, having to go and borrow the V8 the video player from my granddad because we didn't have one. <laughs> so if we're watching a movie, we'd have yeah. to go over and ask to borrow the video player, yeah. pack it up in the car. And that yeah. might have been Betamax as well. Oh, bloody um, hell. so I I guess from the very start of your life, Batman has always been kind of present but not were you reading comic books when you were kind of around the age of five or six no i i I didn't it's really weird because you thought i would have but i didn't actually properly get around to reading a batman comic until i was in my late teens early 20s i think it was Mm. my late teens when I decided, you know, I had, I, I, I dropped out of college. I, I, I had a job. I was getting some money so I could spend on, you know, some, some nice things. I remember buying a hardback edition of The Killing Joke. And I was just amazed. I absolutely adored it. It was so, I mean, obviously I, obviously I spent quite a bit of money on it for the time. And, you know, and then I, it, 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 I thought it'd be a bit longer. But it was just beautiful artwork dark story, so, you know, really investigating, did diving into how the Joker came to be. And I didn't realise till years later, oh, it's Alan Moore who wrote that. Okay, and I like his stuff now. So <laughs> that always felt like a bit of a weird thing. I think with you kind of growing up and not put, not making that connection or not deciding mm. to go off and read comic books, it's because Batman feels bigger than a comic book character. Yeah. Because there are movies and 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 really good cartoons on mm. all the time and action figures it's it's almost comics is a part of it yeah i mean f- f- to me because i i grew up that's again i grew up with i, I didn't just grow up with it i was taught to read with these characters it's the, it's the most prominent bit in my mind and these other things are interpretations and adaptions but to so many people comic books are, are like a small part of what batman is overall mm. you know you, you you're getting the toys every year at birthday or christmas and he's on telly all the time if you if you if you're a kid you know if you're young in the in the early 90s he's there all the time now because mm. that animated series comes out uh, around the same time or just after batman returns yeah so that's kind of coming out early 90s uh, 93 I think it comes out it beats X-Men by like one year or something yeah um, 
and so it's it's there an awful awful lot um and again that the idea that that, that reading a comic book like there were um comic books of indiana jones when that when that movie, there were comic books of star wars where it's not something it doesn't mean that people rushed out to buy those comic books they're not necessarily mm. going to be the direct kind of like oh i've got to go in and read that so that does make a lot of sense actually um, come to think of it i think the first batman comic i did read was before uh killing joke and it was when i was getting comics from the my library when they'd have mm. like you know the aliens comics and, and some crossovers, and it was Batman versus Judge Dredd. Oh yeah, stare into the face of doom. Yeah, stare I... into the fist of dread. It... Bang, and the yeah Batman taking on uh, Judge Dredd and gorgeous, gorgeous artwork. It, it was it was amazing, and I was around that time. I was reading 2000 AD anyway. That was the first proper comic I got into was 2000 mm. AD because it was because you could buy it in a shop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so definitely, I, and I do. Do you remember? Are you probably too young to remember? Try me. Well, nineteen eighty nine, nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine. Well, I was, uh, I was two. Uh, but, I, I have yeah. some flashbacks, some, some things, but uh, I think that was my, my brother was bought. What must have been, you know, under a year old as well, and I barely remember him being a baby. We'll get onto that when we look at that year, but yeah, for me, Batman was absolutely everywhere mm. when this came out. This was, and I think several of the people have talked about this. For for me, this was Star Wars. When people in the seventies yeah. talk about Star Wars was everywhere with them as a mm. kid, it was not just the movie. It was it was on. People were talking about it on TV. People were talking about it in magazines. The posters were everywhere. The merchandise, the toys. The, it was just, you went back and saw it again and again. And Batman was that level of like a pop culture phenomenon in 1989. I'm picking up the red phone. <laughs> the red phone is connected to only one person in the whole country. It's only got one number. And when I pick up that red phone, it makes a bust of William Shakespeare's eyes light up. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It makes another red phone light up. That's what happens. <laughs> and that red phone is in the palatial residence of William P. Preston, Esquire, <laughs> otherwise known as Mr. Hollywood. And it, it causes him to go down the Hollywood pole. And land in the Hollywood cave where he uses the Hollywood computer <laughs> to rake through the trash cans and the dumpsters of Hollywood to dig up the dirt. Because we want to go behind the scenes now, Mr. Hollywood, on the Batman movie, the making of this 1989 classic, seminal movie, cultural touchstone. And we need Mr. Hollywood to bring us all the, uh, the dirt. Okay, where do I begin? I know where to begin. We're going to make sense of the dollars and cents. Now, as we know, not many superheroes films at this point are there. However, let's uh, let's have a quick look at what we can to give you context. Now, this isn't technically the first Batman movie. The first Batman movie was uh, the follow-on from the 1960s TV show. Uh, in 1966, uh, on a budget of 1.379 million, which I assume is a lot of money back then, uh, box office including rentals after uh, 3.9 million. So it's that doesn't it doesn't oh. mean rentals after it oh, means 
sometimes what basically a box office rental is the money going to the studio. Ah, uh, okay. So okay. it's not showing you all the money made at the box office. It's showing you all the money going to the studio at the box office. I don't uh, know why it's, called, it's written like that sometimes, Well, but indeed it is. It threw me off. It had a very limited release, that movie. It was not everywhere. Mm. It was in very select theatres. Um, and indeed was part of the alleged first wave of Batmania um, <laughs> that sort of swept the country of America a little bit. Um, and have you seen that movie, the Batman 66 movie? I've, I, I think I, I definitely seen most of it. I don't know if I've seen the entire thing. But of course, we all remember Robin, the bat repellent shark spray. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a tremendously fun movie. Oh, um, all the Batman villains work together. They um, use a ray gun to turn the United Nations into little piles of dust um, <laughs> by sucking all the water out of them. Um, <laughs> the, the, there's a bat boat in it and a bat helicopter yeah. and a bat cycle and a bat... Be- it's just... It is ev- like I would watch episodes of the 60s TV show and be like, I want more. I want there to be more in it. The movie gave you more. It gave you every <laughs> villain, every vehicle. Um, yeah, tremendous fun. It's the it's the first kind of movie that I think my my godson, when he was about six, watched all the way through. Yeah. Um, and it was so bright and colourful. He loved it. It's it just it's, it's fun to go back to the uh, the 60s series and the film because you think that. You think you used to think like, oh, they're just it, it, it's stupid and silly, but it's like, no, no, that's actually the point. It's supposed to be like this, and it's entertaining, and it works. It's so camp and fun. It's oh, I love it. And like, and and, and like you, know, I I think Batman should be silly again like this. I think we should have fun Batman back. Maybe not as camp as this, but I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure if we need a silly Batman. Silly but Batman, we need, please. We need a lighter, a lighter tone. I think we need a we need a Venn diagram. Anyway, I digress. Move on to 1978. We get our first major superhero film in Superman. The budget $55 million. Box office $300.5 million. That's that's, incredible. that's that's crazy. That is that's incredible crazy. money. Of, of course, uh, if you fancy uh, hearing more about it, we did do a four-hour episode on Superman. So go back through the archives and check that out after you've listened to this podcast episode. After this. Anyway. That brings us on to 1989. A long time to wait for another superhero film. That's well, of course there weren't because there were all the ba- Superman sequels. See, we don't we don't talk about, <laughs> but they those. were in bo- like the second one made a lot of money and the second all, one was they good. All did well, third was not as good. Fourth was, yeah, it's Batman 1989 budget 48 million dollars, so slightly less than Superman. Box office 411.6 million dollars. I can't believe this movie was made for $48 million. That's mad. It also set the record of quickest $100 million made for a film in 10 days. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. This was something else, mate. This was a cultural phenomenon and a huge success at the cinema. So, let me get down to what led to this film. In the late 1970s, a decade after the success of the 1960s TV show... Batman's popularity was waning. CBS had in, uh, was interested in producing a Batman in outer space film. Producers Benjamin Melnicker and Michael E. Uslan produ- uh, purchased the film rights of Batman from DC Comics on October 3rd, 1979. Speaking about this urge to bring a darker Batman to the big screen, Uslan said, It was like an epiphany. It just hit me. 
I want to make the definitive, dark, serious version of Batman the way Bob Kane and Bill Finger had envisioned him in 1939, a creature of the night, stalking criminals in the shadows. And that became it. That became my focal point. If I knew then how long would it would have taken me to get that fe- uh, first picture done, I don't know what I would have done. It's an awful lot of people, Will, who, after the success of this movie, mm. started to talk about how they always knew Batman should be dark <laughs> uh, and not <laughs> I knew it in the 70s, but no one listened to me. Yeah. And then, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Oh, I was telling you all along, but no one listened to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just saying what he's saying. Just saying what he's saying. But that's when everything started. I went to see the president of DC Comics, who I believe was Sol Harrison at the time. And I said, I want to do this. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And Sol had mentored me into the comic book business. And I was very close to him. And he said, Michael, Batman is as dead as a dodo. And that's a quote, since it went off on TV. He says to me, no one is interested in Batman. The only interest has been from CBS, who wanted to know if the rights were available because they wanted to do a Batman in Outer Space movie. I said, Sol, I really believe I can do this. He then advised me to go get credentials, and and when I had the credentials, come back and see him. He assured me that in the meantime, no one would take the rights to Batman. Batman in out does he does he, he goes to space at some point in the comics I imagine he goes to oh yeah yeah loads we'll, 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 we'll probably talk about that later but man that would have been crazy uh, Tom Mankiewicz uh, completed a script titled The Batman in June 1983 focusing on Batman and Dick Grayson's origins with the Joker and Rupert Thorne as villains and Silver Saint Cloud as the romantic interest. The Batman was then announced in late 1983 for a mid-1985 release date on a budget of $20 million. Originally, Mankiewicz had wanted an unknown actor for Batman, William Holden for James Gordon, David Niven as uh, Alfred Pennyworth, and Peter O'Toole as the Penguin, who Mankiewicz wanted to portray as a mobster with a low body temperature. (laughs) We need some iron tablets. <laughs> Holden died in 1981 and Niven in 1983, so this would never come to past. Niven, Niven, Niven looks like Alfred Pennyworth. Oh, yeah, he's, he's got the classic uh, English gentleman look. I mean, and the, the thin moustache. Mm. I swear he was born with it. Anyway, Reitman wanted to cast Bill Murray as Batman and Eddie Murphy as Robin. I remember hearing that for a while, and I think that was just based on Batman's camp and silly. Yeah. Like, who are the, who are the cool stars of the moment? I can't imagine Bill Murray as Batman. It would just be too sardonic. It would be incredibly sardonic. Yeah, but, but it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a... Re- it would just be a, a joke kind joke of thing, yeah. muck tape movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the financial success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985, Warner Brothers hired Tim Burton to direct Batman. Batman had then-girlfriend Julie Burton, Hitch- not Batman. Batman's oh, sorry, not real. Burton. Burton, <laughs> Batman, Burton, Batman. Burton had then-girlfriend uh, Julie Hickson uh, write a new 30-page film treatment, thinking the previous script by Mankiewicz was campy. 
The success of The Dark Knight Returns and the graphic novel Batman The Killing Joke rekindled Warner Brothers' interest in a film adaptation. Burton was initially not a comic book fan, but he was impressed by the dark and serious tone found in both The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke. Burton approached Sam Hamm, a comic book fan. That's... Sam Ham, comic book fan, <laughs> <laughs> to write the screenplay. Ham decided not to use an origin story, feeling the flashbacks would be more suitable and that unlocking the mystery would become part of the storyline. He reasoned, you totally destroy your credibility if you show the literal process by which Bruce Wayne becomes Batman. Something, of course, Did you uh, hear that? <laughs> happened later with Christopher Nolan in Batman that, Nolan? It's also fun because yeah. Batman should be this um, romantic figure. Yeah. The idea of a dark and mysterious person is very romantic. If you know right from the get-go what makes him so tortured, yeah. it's like, it's like um, I guess, those kind of Twilight, like the, maybe the first Twilight movie yeah. where the, the gorgeous, handsome, tortured soul, mysterious, tortured soul, like is so very attractive to all the girls reading it and watching it. And you have to discover through the process of the story why is he so tortured and war. You know, it's not just you start. He's a vampire. There he is. You know, you need you need that kind of the allure yeah. of the mystery and how can I save him and heal him? I'll talk about it more, obviously. But going back, it was interesting to see how you know compared to like Batman Begins and other origin stuff, origin stories. It was a nice way of telling it. Anyway, Batman was finally given the green light to commence pre-production in April 1988, after the success of Burton's Beetlejuice the same year. When comic book fans found out about Burton directing the film with Michael Keaton starring in the lead role, controversy arose over the tone and direction Batman was going in. Ham explained, They hear Tim Burton's name and they think of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. They hear Keaton's name and they think of any number of Michael Keaton comedies. You think the 1960s version of Batman and that was a complete opposite of our film. We tried to market it with a typical dark and serious tone, but the fans didn't believe us. For the role of Batman, a number of A-listers were considered, including Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, Charlie Sheen, Tom Selleck, Bill Murray, Harrison Ford and Dennis Quaid. Burton was pressured by Warner Brothers to cast an obvious action movie star and had approached Pierce Brosnan, but he had no interest in playing a comic book character. Pierce Brosnan would have been great. Although in 88, what's Brosnan done? It's action-based. He's done a couple of like small action... He was, hasn't even done that. I think they wanted him for Bond around 1987 mm. for Living Daylight. Oh, but he was doing Remington Steel. He was doing Remington Steel, Remington that's Steel. the TV show. So they yeah. went with... Um, Timothy Dalton, who I really like, and then later got him for 1995's Goldeneye. But yeah, Pierce, younger Pierce Brosnan's Batman. Oh, he Pierce Brosnan so... looks like Bruce Wayne to me. Yeah, he, he would have been so suave. Unbelievable. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, I've, I have a lot of time for Brosnan. I, I do like him a lot. Actors considered for the role of Joker included Tim Curry, David Bowie, John Lithgow, Brad Dourif, Ray Liotta and James Woods. Lithgow. Two of those names are horrifying. I I can see David Bowie, Woods, and Ray Liotta as. You can see David Bowie. I can see David Bowie looking like the Joker, but not playing him. I can't see David Bowie playing the Joker. Yeah, looking in the makeup and everything. 
Perfect. No. Lithgow, during his audition, attempted to talk Burton out of casting him, a decision he would later publicly regret, stating, I didn't realise it was such a big deal. John Lithgow as the Joker! What he means is, yeah. he didn't realise that Nicholson could have negotiated in such an insane contract, but Lithgow would not have been able to negotiate that contract. No, no, he wasn't as big a, big a name at the time. Which comes, uh, which brings us to very interesting behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, which a lot of people knew about, uh, a lot of people known about for years. Uh, Warner Brothers had a clear top choice to play the Joker, of course, with Jack Nicholson. However, Nicholson wasn't thrilled about the project and turned it down. Meanwhile... Robin Williams had been actively campaigning for the Joker role and was eventually offered the part. Warner Brothers basically made the offer to bait Nicholson into signing on after Nicholson was told Williams would take the role if he didn't. Nicholson relented and took the gig. Williams was understandably furious about Warner Brothers' duplicity and demanded an apology for, from the studio before he would agree to work with them again. Wow, man. D- of course, this happened a second time as well in 1995 with Batman Forever, uh, with the role of the Riddler. Uh, with Robin Williams again. Robin Williams again happened again. If you look yeah. at yeah, it's. I feel sorry for the guy. That's really bad behaviour on Warner Brothers' part. But yeah. Well, it's just a part of negotiating, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's 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 insane. And then, of course, you know the you know the deal that that Nicholson got. I heard it was a huge amount of money, also, and rights and merchandising rights and stuff like that. I I, it's not merchandising, but he got money off the of the. He got a percentage of the gross. Ooh. So whatever it takes in totally, mm. he got, and it was it's something in the. They estimate it's something in the region of like eighty. It's something between fifty and ninety million dollars that he got. Um, at a time when that was not, you know, going to happen. After agency fees, that's still insane. Yeah, so it's a it was something like a six million, six million dollars actual fee, mm. but a percentage of yeah, of the of the take. Yeah, incredible. Burton chose Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent because he wanted to include the villain Two Face in a future film using the concept of an African American Two Face for the black and white concept. However. Two-Face was later recast with Tommy Lee Jones in the 1995 film Batman Forever. Speaking about the role of Dent, Williams said, The contract I I signed was to play Harvey Dent. It wasn't a two or three picture situation. With Star Wars, I signed for two pictures. I think that at that stage, after the first Batman, some Japanese company, Sony or something like that, bought out the contract. I can't really recall it. Tommy Lee Jones is a great actor and it was a different regime then. When I took on the role, I was looking forward to play Two-Face, but it didn't work out. Uh, did you see him? I love that in Lego Batman where they actually got him in to play Two-Face. They did, yeah. They did, and cool. I was in the cinema grinning and went, that is such... Mwah. That's the right kind of fan service. I'm not entirely sure what a black and white Two-Face would look like. Well, Presumably they mean half of him would be kind of like a whitened white fa- yeah thing i'm not sure about that well i'll probably go mention it later but they they recently finished a run dc comics released a run called batman 89 which served as a unofficial third film third story where billy d williams uh harvey dent does become two-faced and he basically has a very beetlejuice look like he has the black mm. and white suit and he has half his face is sort of what very very, very pale blue 
it's it was it was a, it's a really good read. Uh, it's just really mad to go back and see Michael Keaton's face in a comic like that with graying at the sides and stuff. It's really good. Production designer Anton First was hired for the film, who then worked to cl- clash architectural styles to make Gotham City the ugliest and bleakest metropolis imaginable. First said, "Metropolis, ima- metropolis, metrop. What did I? Say? I'm an idiot. Metro." What the, happened there? I, I, um, you were going to say a metropolitan, and metropolitan, then you realised yeah. the word ended halfway through. Yeah. First said, we imagined what New York City might have become without a planning commission. A city run by crime with a riot of architectural styles. An essay in ugliness, as if hell erupted through the pavement and kept on going. I love Anton First so much. What's, what else has he done? Because... Uh, um, well, he was on board um, for... Well, it took them a long time to get him on, on this project. Mm. Um, and I be, he was such a first choice for them um, mm. that it was it was a really big deal that they able, was able to get him uh, to, uh, to come aboard. Um, but he's not... I mean, he did Full Metal Jacket. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. He did... Um, did he do Beetlejuice? It says here Burton tried to convince first to work on Beetlejuice, but decided to do High Spirits instead. Oh yeah, yeah. and then of course he does Batman Returns, which I think it looks the Gotham looks way better. Yeah, like he's got full reign in in Batman Returns. Oh dear, um, I just uh, read that he uh, committed suicide. We don't need to mention it on the podcast, do we? We just keep it light, can't we? <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, we can. We talk about lots of famous people. We don't immediately go to how they died. <laughs> No, I just had a quick look at his Wikipedia page. Yeah, you just keep it in your head, don't you? And don't and don't. No, but it was it during like... Batman Returns, and that's like, oh dear. That's okay, but we. <laughs> Let's talk about happy things. Let's, Let's... talk about <laughs> <laughs> costume designer Bob Ringwood turned down the chance to work on a Bond on the Bond film License to Kill in favor of Batman. Ringwood found it difficult designing the Batsuit because the image of Batman in the comics is the huge, big, six-foot-four hunk with a dimpled chin. Michael Keaton is a guy with average I don't, build. I don't know what comics he's read, but that's not Batman. Who's, who's the guy The guy we keep making fun of in Marvel comics for built, make, uh, Robert, Rob Leash? What's Which he talking about? The, the, art, Rob, the artist who beat that Captain America with the huge chest. Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld, that was it. Yeah, has he been reading really it? Yeah, did Rob Leefield do a Batman? He's describing, he's describing Superman, which Batman doesn't really look like. Yeah, exactly. Ringwood stated that the problem was to make somebody who was average size and ordering looking into this bigger-than-life creature. So me and you probably... I can't... Because even though I'm, I was how many years older than you, hmm. I, there was no... You're so young, you don't have any... You're not going into this movie going, well, who are they going to get to play Batman? I'm not sure about that idea. There's none of that going on whatsoever, is there? It is... uh, uh, Michael Keaton was Batman, and he looked fantastic. The costume looked fantastic. So it's kind of hard to, for for me, I think for me and you, to uh, put ourselves back into a time and place where it's odd to think that he would be able to kind of pull this off or people were doubting it because it just looks so right to me yeah it's 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 mad but i i i if we had the same level of like media coverage back then as we do now with fan speculation oh it'd be awful it'd be awful yeah Yeah. it would have been absolutely toxic back then burton hired danny elfman of the new wave band oingo boingo to compose the music score elfman was burton's collaborator on Wee's big adventure and beetlejuice 
Talking with The Hollywood Reporter years later, Elfman revealed how he had no choice but to write the film score from an airplane bathroom. That hit me at the worst possible time. On the way home, the inspiration hits me, and it was like, what do I do? I'm on a 747. How do I do this? I'm going to forget this all. I'm going to land, and they're going to play some Beatles song, and I'm going to forget everything. I start running in the bathroom and hum phrases, and I go back to my seat, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Ten minutes later, back in the bathroom, and then back to my seat, and then back to the bathroom, because I couldn't do this with the guy sitting next to me. Ten minutes later, I am back in the bathroom, and I open the door, and this time there are three flight attendants, and they're probably going, what the hell is he doing so frequently? You can't, you can't do that much blow. You can't shoot up that often. What is he doing in there? <laughs> Mad. Uh, did, have you ever listened to the band Oingo Boingo? Yeah, probably. I, I did enjoy a lot of New Wave as a younger man, so probably, but I don't I don't recall much. Oh, they're, 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 they're really good. The thing is, they're one of those bands that never really took foot here, but would, any American uh, audio, uh, listeners will, will, will vouch for me that they were much bigger over there. But I've, I've listened to a fair bit of them. I really love them. They're very bizarre and a lot of fun. There's some really good songs. Uh, producers John Peters and Peter Guber wanted Prince to write music for the Joker and Michael Jackson to do the romance songs. Elfman would then combine the style of Prince and Jackson songs together for the entire film score. At the encouragement of Prince's then-manager, Albert Mag- Magnoli, it was also agreed that Prince himself would write and sing the film's songs. Now, we're going to get on to a bit more about Prince here. Uh, we'll talk about Prince's uh, soundtrack later. Speaking about Prince's... Uh, sorry, our opinions on it, I mean. Speaking about Prince's experience writing songs for the film, Prince's manager, Albert Magnoli, said, when he did Purple Rain and the tour, he had spent a tremendous amount of cash and he was now at a place where his management, to their credit, were attempting to leverage future earnings in order to pay for past and present debt. I immediately did a forensic kind of financial search as to what was really going on, and it was more horrible than anybody thought. So, the plan was about trying to bring revenue into operation without overextending him to the point where no one would be interested in getting involved in anything he wanted to do. And the Batman album came into being when I was contacted uh, by Batman producer Mark Canton, and I went to Prince and said, this will help us bring revenue into the system without having to expose you to another album. This will be a way for you to creatively go to work. It's not essentially a Prince album, it's a Batman album, so it's a win-win. The revenue from Batman and severe cost-cutting, we went uh, from a 10 million per year nut to 2 million, allowing him to continue on without a concern, without changing his lifestyle. So, yeah, I can. you can kind of understand when they're talking about not overextending yourself, it means you need to bring in a lot of money. Yeah. Your options are make lots of albums. Well, that just floods the market and people get sick yep. and tired of you. Yep. So you need to kind of protect yourself, especially when you are a star like Prince. Mm. I mean, you, that's keeping the uh, a little bit of mystique going. I mean, I I love Prince. I think he's he was insanely talented. Uh, he, he was one of those people who would just spend all his time in the studio. That he was he was a prolific guy. He would just and he'd write songs for other people too. He, he you know, he's he's got his head in the right place in terms of that. You ever heard Kevin Smith talk about Prince's house? No, no. What do you say? On one of his wonderful speaking tours he talked about working with prince for some reason mm. and um and prince just had like every room in prince's house was wired for sound and recording all the time so wherever <laughs> he was if he want if he had an idea for a song he would yeah. just start singing out loud and it would be recorded and so he'd know the next day oh i was in the bathroom at 10 and i sang that ditty i'll go and listen back to it 
about to say, at first it sounded like Richard Nixon's house. Mm. <laughs> With loads of wiretapping. Uh, speaking about Prince writing music for the film, Mark Canton, then head of production at Marvel... Uh, sorry, at... What am I saying, Marvel? At Warner Brothers said, Prince, to me, was the greatest. We tried to bring Michael Jackson in to do it together with him, but that was never real. The way executives worked in those days with talent was to not only make a movie an event, but to market it. A lot of it was, how do we get the most bang for our buck? How do we get people to pay attention? We did it with Purple Rain brilliantly. Prince loved Batman. He talked about Batman. The Batman series as a kid was something that he loved. I think he loved the darkness and the intensity. Yeah, so it's not just about getting a good singer to do some good songs. Yeah. When you get someone like Prince in, yes. then the PR behind that, it's another level of marketing oh, going God, on for the for the movie. It's like a completely different arm on itself. It's this this why it's mm. so fascinating because you think about this film and then realize, oh yeah, Prince did the whole bloody separate soundtrack for this film that was you know amazing in the months before batman's release in june 1989 a popular culture phenomena known as batmania began over 750 million dollars worth of merchandise was sold cult filmmaker and comic book writer kevin smith remembered that summer was huge you couldn't turn around without seeing the bat signal somewhere people were cutting it into their effing heads it was just the summer of Batman, and if you were a comic book fan, it was pretty hot. That's the thing that I wanted to talk about. Mm. That, uh, as I don't, I've not talked about this in a while, but when you're a kid, before, in the 1980s, we talked about there aren't a lot of, of comic book things in movies, there aren't a lot of comic book TV shows, especially in England, where comic books are not as... American superhero comic books are not as popular. There's the Beano and the Dandy and things like that, but superhero stuff is just not a popular thing in the 80s. To then see the the the, the Bat logo... When, when Kevin Smith says it was over, it was... I remember this. It was bus stops... And it was it was just the posters for this the it the, what I it was the first time I'd ever sort of come across what would be the teaser poster. Mm. There was no information on this poster. <laughs> there was just the bat symbol. It wasn't even the word Batman on it, right? And that's how um, you know they talk about things that pass from just being you know logos that become a part of of like pop culture hugely one of the most recognizable symbols in the world was and and it became more and so because of this this marketing campaign um and so the 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 symbol was just everywhere and it was getting you just like invested and interested um and then the other posters came out and then the the marketing like the merchandise hit before the movie came out Mm -hmm. like uh, it was just everywhere and that was something that for me someone that cherished these moments where I would see my favorite characters in the outside world. Like I can remember there being a Captain America and the Avengers arcade game at the leisure center and going, <gasps> wow, my favorite characters are kind of like out in the other, other kids are seeing them. Cause I knew nobody that read comic books at all. Um, and so seeing, seeing the bat symbol plastered on, bus stops and billboards and and you know i i live right down um right on the corner where i lived there was um big advert billboards in in the town um right at the crossing there and the, i have such strong memories of the the batman logo being there and it's so weird but just like getting to pass it every day on the way to school 
I loved it. I wanted to walk that way to school, which took slightly longer because I wanted to walk past the Batman logo every day. <laughs> Madness. <laughs> I get it. I, I just remember how that symbol was my childhood. I just that's all I remember. The and they they there's there's talk of how they cop they they repeated it. Hmm. Um certainly the black and gold. Yeah. But the repeating of the symbol. So in the lead up to Jurassic Park being released, mm. all they released initially was the Jurassic Park logo, the, yes. the symbol. Not the word Jurassic Park, not anything about the movie. And again, it was black and gold. Um, there's another movie they did it for, I can't quite remember, but there's a few of them where they started to be the thing of mm. that. Dick Tracy, that's the other one. <laughs> now, obviously, Dick Tracy didn't turn out to work, but I was yeah. really invested. You'd say. Like, it was like that logo. There's a logo, and there's a. It was the guy on the watch, um, on the talkie watch. Um, Fun, was funny, the logo. Thi- funny thing that I remember uh, watching Dick Tracy cartoons uh, as a, around the same time, and then the film came out, and you know I, I barely remember the film, but apparently uh, Warren Beatty still dresses up as Dick Tracy and demands they do another film or something. It says that if you look online, I can't- what do you mean? What he runs I, into a movie producer's house and no, I, I think he, 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 he records videos on the internet and stuff. Um, I saw I have, it randomly. I, I have I have heard he's trying. He's been trying to get one going for a while. Yeah, yeah. And I saw a video recently. You know, he's 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 looking a lot older, obviously, and he's still got the big yellow raincoat on and everything. And I'm just thinking, oh man, I think you have to move on, mate. You know, I don't think I don't think we're gonna ever gonna get another Dick Tracy because it's such a. It's like we're never gonna get, get another Doc Savage. Because we've we've, we've we, found, will. we will we'll get a Doc Savage. Yeah, you reckon yeah. we'll get a Doc Savage? Yeah. Look, Hollywood has nothing. Will <laughs> they have nothing? <laughs> you don't think we're going to get a Doc Savage shared universe? The Doc Savage. Of course shared. we are. What? Well, but not Dick Tracy again. No more Dick Tracy. Do you think? No, we'll, we'll get we'll get a version of everything. Okay, okay. I'll be interested with Dick Tracy because it will just look like oh look, he's got a wrist mounted communication device. It's like. Yeah, we all we all have that. We all have oh, that. I now. desperately wanted one of those as a kid. Same. I loved that we don't, so we don't, much. We don't have it though, do we? We don't have a wrist-mounted TV screen that shows you you can you can video call someone from your watch, and they've got their own watch that would video call them. Okay, I could probably do that. We okay. got the technology, Rob. We, we don't do it though. We don't because there's no point. Anyway. Anton First and Peter Young won the Academy Award for Best Art Direction, while Nicholson was nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in Musical or a Comedy. The success of Batman and Batman Returns prompted Warner Brothers Animation to create the acclaimed Batman the Animated Series as a result as a result of the beginning of the long-running DC animated universe and helping establish the modern-day superhero film genre. Looking back on Batman paving the way for modern superhero movies, Burton joked, Ever since I did Batman, it was like the first dark comic book movie. Now everybody wants to do a dark and serious superhero movie. I guess I'm the one responsible for that trend. The year is 1989. Um, Will, you said you were a couple of years old? I was a toddler. Little toddler. Little toddler. So not much memory of this, um, of, of of what you were up to, or this year, or this movie coming out. Barely. Um, as I said, I was six, seven years old, and I did, 
Batman was 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 really my 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 life at this period of time like in the same way that Star Wars was for some people um I was already getting the um monthly uh comic book the UK um London editions as they were called London edition publications did uh, Superman and Batman monthly reprints of the American comics and then oversized so they're the same size as a as a British comic which is like the Beano or a dandy um so they changed the format to make it palpable to the uh to us Brits who like our oversized comics <laughs> um so I was I was um, getting that every month, reading the the new Batman every month in the eighties. Um, although I don't know what the delay was from America, but but I had the poster, I had the toys, I had the I so what I I remember struck because I didn't see this movie until I'm thinking nineteen ninety one when it was on the BBC at Christmas time. I'm mm. assuming that's the first time. It's possible my parents rented it for me. In the year after when it came out in 1990 maybe but i'm not i'm not sure um but i i had um the the stickers mm. uh the sticker album i had the trading cards i would get the trading cards from the local shop on on that was uh on the way home from school mm. and the trading cards had stills from the movie Scenes from the movie. <laughs> I remember and they came those with trading a, cards. Yeah, they came with a chewing gum, mm. and I'd try and piece the movie together based on the trading <laughs> cards. Um, I had the official magazine, which had um, behind the scenes stuff and um, like what, like a breakdown of what the Batmobile is and what the Batcave looks like. Mm. Great photos in that. Um, I had the. The toys were really good. Um, the toys they brought out around this time were really good. They weren't... So, in this period of time, I eventually got... I had the Batmobile. Um, I had the Batmobile that I could put my Batman in. That was so cool. That was a very cool toy. I had the Batcopter as well. Um, oh! I, I, I didn't get Batman toys till obviously, after the film. Uh, but I remember having this weird bat plane where the wings would retract at the back, and you could put Batman in the plane. That's Batwing, yeah, the Batwing. Oh I mean, no, that's what I'm, when I say Batcopter, I think I, I think it was the Batwing I had, not a Batcopter. Well, the Batwing. Well, maybe I did. I, I can't had, remember. I always see see the Batwing as like being like in the film where it's like shaped like the Batman logo, kind of. But this one was just the wings were at the back. That makes oh sense. right, okay. It was a very bizarre one. And I also had, before I'd even seen the movie, I had the, what used to be called, the official comic book adaptation <laughs> of the movie. Um, Superb. And that was virtually scene for scene and line for line the movie, but done in a comic book form. And I read that literally until the cover came off, and then I kept it still, because I was like, oh, I don't need the cover. Um, I would take. I I have strong memories of taking it to my grandparents' house because I was like, oh, I'm gonna need something to read there. It's a boring place to go. And by the time I saw the movie, hmm. I knew every word of dialogue, <laughs> word for word. <laughs> I did the same when the mask movie came out not long after. Oh um, god, yeah. It was it was like you weren't. Sometimes you weren't able to like couldn't afford to go to the cinema or like this. It was a, the the rating was a little too high, hmm. um, but. Man, I just, I had, I had, it had it all. It was everywhere. It was a huge, huge part of my childhood. This kind of, uh, this era and this version of Batman, and 
Yeah, the the chewing gum, the sweets, the the Batman candy sticks, candy cigarettes. Oh, I remember those. I mean, yeah. I had Sonic candy sticks back in the day. I remember those. But having having them with a little picture of the Joker on one or Batman mm. on the other, and it was just constant. It was just uh, the merchandise was everywhere. And maybe you can look back in a cynical way and talk about always oh, in capitalism awful. I loved all of this. I wanted Batman on everything, and I got it. And I'd gone from it was like going from zero to a hundred because, like, it was just really Batman was the easier to find. But you could, I mean, finding a Batman toy could be tricky. And now suddenly it was everywhere. Mm. Wonderful. Um, the events of nineteen eighty nine with the fall of the Berlin Wall in November. That's a very um, important the- thing, Rob. I don't want you glancing over it. <laughs> I, I I know you always yeah. do this when I put important world events, and you go. Something happened yeah. there, I guess. Mm. The Game Boy came out. That's the more important one. Nintendo game- is the Game Boy. The Game Boy was incredible. I had one. Uh, I, I've got a myriad of, of, of gaming machines, including the Steam Deck. And I still go, oh, I really miss the Game Boy. The Game Boy was fantastic. Um, top singles of the year. Now, uh, Ride uh, on Time. Ta- Sorry? I need to stop you uh, here slightly because uh, I just realized uh, the four and five... Art from 1989, because you know what? I thought I'd be really high-tech and use uh, ChatGPT to help me get the, get the information. Why would you do this? <laughs> well, I didn't, actually, it's not ChatGPT, it was Google Bards, but I thought, hey, I, I could try this. And I uh, realised uh, too late that uh, 4 and 5, not from 1989, but I've got information here to help you. So don't do what, 4 and what's 5. What's the information? Is it the actual list? Well, some information. It's very hard to get the information, but just read the first three out. We'll we'll we'll, we'll deal with it. <laughs> okay, right on time by Black Box. You must know this one. I adore this song, yeah, and I will great. put it on my party lists. It's it's late eighties, early nineties dance music. Yeah, is so special to me. Wonderful. It's not only nostalgic. It just it's a lot of fun. And this one, adore it. I absolutely adore it. I won't sing it, although I can do that. Ah! Uh, if you haven't heard it, go uh, out and listen to Eternal it. Flame by the Bangles, um, which is a, is a, a big one. Big um, one. Back to Life by Soul to Soul. I don't know that song. Back um, to Life. Oh! Back to yeah, of course I do. It's because it says in brackets, however do you want me? And I just was like, I don't know this song. That's a great song. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, huge song. Uh, I, I'll, I'll pick a couple of others from a big list. There was Swing the Mood by Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers. I vaguely remember that i had the jive yeah. i had that i loved jive bunny as a kid i don't know why i had the jive bunny album on tape that i got from the library and then i'd use a tape a double to a tape to tape tape it yeah and i loved jive bunny i loved it i thought it was great all these old songs but remixed yeah i i, I vaguely remember that that must have led to like grease mega mix and stuff like that that would that's a, that's been a huge staple at weddings and and, and the like uh, there, and I'll pick another one. There was a yeah, blah, 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 blah. mistletoe and wine by Cliff Richard was, was spent a lot of time. I loved that song. I, I, it was such a Christmassy song. It's it's, and, it's fine. It's fine, Rob. Right. I'm just I'm just but I'm I'm not saying it's a good song. I'm saying as a kid, I I love. Yeah. So when I hear it now, I go, oh, I I remember the greatest Christmas of my life. <laughs> <laughs> like mistletoe and wine is the sound of. My eighty nine is my mm. Christmas childhood because Batman mm. is coming out on Christmas Day, and because I'm just getting cool toys and all of that. It was just a, uh, I just that may be like the first time that I really appreciated. You get this long holiday from school at Christmas yeah. time, and 
I'm a kid and everything's awesome. And that's how I felt, really. It was great. I think for me, uh, the, the Christmas song that always brings me back is the Slade one. Because that, that one is just, for me, that's like, as soon as I hear that, it's like, yeah, it's all coming back. But that's from the 70s. I know. <laughs> I, I'm just comparing. I don't care what you think. But yeah. Great, you great song. you of your Christmas is in the 1970s. Yeah. But, well, they used to play it a lot. They always play that song. Anyway. Uh, the Simpsons' first little short aired on the Tracy Ullman show. Uh, I don't know whether the, when we got it no, over no, here. Uh, no, it's uh, 1987 they, they aired as shorts, but the first episode... Oh, right, okay. Uh, Ed, and, uh, Ed, Ed, right at the end of 1989. Uh, and, you know, a show that would become a cultural phenomena and the longest-running primetime scripted show in history with 750 episodes and counting. Yes, I still watch this show. Okay. Uh, the first episode of Seinfeld airs, mm-hmm. um, which is... Yeah, it's interesting, that first one. Uh, Elaine's yeah. not in it. They try to make the waitress a character. She's kind of good, actually. Mm. Um, Kramer's not fun yet. Um, <laughs> but it's still, they're still packed with loads of great Seinfeld stuff in that one. Yeah, the um, first one, if I remember right, was it, it didn't go well. And then they had to really push for for another season. It was a short season, if I remember right. It's like six episodes or something. It's not that it didn't go well. They just only signed them up for, I think, oh. three, or, three or four episodes or something weird. Mm. Um only got that contract because they were worried about what was going to happen with David Letterman uh, and Jay Leno. Oh. <clears throat> Seinfeld was signed to a holding contract um, oh. because they there's a lot going on on late night TV. Baywatch uh, washed onto our screens mm. uh, with David Hasselhoff uh, and then later Pamela Anderson. Yeah, stunning, stunning woman. Stunning, yeah. stunning. I, I kind of because you kind of so used to maybe the 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 late nineties and two thousands kind of um, scandal hit Pamela Anderson. Yeah, it's kind of easy to to uh, maybe overlook that. Like on Home Improvement and Baywatch, she was just a a stunning young person. Very very um, stunning. Um, the, there was a recent series, uh, Pam and Tommy. Started off well, petered off towards the end, but it was a fascinating look into that scandal. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in movies, Billy Crystal, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, uh, when Harry Met Sally um, came out, I'm guessing. Yep. Um, uh, that is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, I adore that movie. I adore the script of that movie. It changed the way dialogue was written forever. It's just an incredible, incredible comedy. It's great. I, I only got around to watching it the other year for the first time, and I adore it. I adored it. It was so good. Um, the scene where they're having a heart-to-heart whilst watching a baseball game, so they have to keep getting up to do the Mexican wave. Just tons <laughs> of fun. I like the uh, pecan pie. Would you like to partake of your pecan pie? Uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure came out as well, uh, which is another such a strong movie from my childhood. Same. Um, well, I am Bill S. Preston. I am Will Preston. Oh, of course. Yes, yeah, he's just my name. Horrible thing to realise. Um, <laughs> And Timothy Dalton ends his run as James Bond with License to Kill, which is, at the time, was the best Bond film I'd ever seen when it it's came good. out. Loved License to Kill. Um, highest grossing films, um, we Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade was the highest grossing film of 1989. Mm. Over $474 million earned. Batman trailing behind, although it came out later in the year, didn't it? Mm. Um, Batman trailing behind with uh, $411 million. Back to the Future Part 3. Oh, my God. What a year. Is that Part 3 or Part 2? I don't know. Part 2. Something like that. Part 2. But yeah, yeah. Indiana, Last Crusade, Batman, 
Back to the Future. Yeah. Wow. We also had little, uh, sorry, we also had um, Look Who's Talking, which I loved as a kid. Mm. Um, Dead Poet Society, which is certainly, is certainly a lot, a lot of people like Dead Poet Society. Um, the Little Mermaid, <laughs> Lethal Weapon 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Ghostbusters 2, Born on the 4th of July. That's a massive, massive year for movies. Huge. Um, and uh, to have also had Batman come out, wow, what a year. Let's take a little trip behind the page now to look at how this uh, enduring fictional figure first came to be and how it kind of changed comic books and where it all came from. Um, we need to start with Bob Kane, um, the credited creator of Batman, co-creator in most people's minds. Mm. Uh, Bob Kane is someone that studied um, art at um, Cooper Union, and he joined the Max Fleischer studio as a trainee animator um, oh. in the yeah in the mid nineteen thirties. And then by 1936, he'd entered into the actual the, the industry of the of comic book art or comic strip art. Um, he's a freelancer, um, contributing a lot of material to a comic book called "Wow, What a Magazine." <laughs> um, now, before the appearance of Superman and Batman, comic strips and comic books were really all about um, a lot of. Uh, Comedy, love talking animal comic strips, um, as well as some adventurous heroes and detectives. Um, and among Bob Kane's work, there was a uh, talking animal um, strip called Peter Pup uh, about a talking dog. Um, and then he worked for National Comics, which would eventually become DC Comics. And he he contributed some work to a uh, Oscar the Gumshoe for Detective Comics and Professor Doolittle for Adventure Comics. Um, and then 1939, the start of 1939, Superman appears on Action Comics and everything changes. And the editors at National Comics are hot to trot for superheroes. They need some more of these. Can we get something that's like Superman? We need more Superman. And out goes the call. Um, we need more costumed uh, heroic characters that have superpowers and do all this flying around and stuff. Can we get another Superman? And Bob Kane has what I would call the visual idea for something he calls the Batman. So Kane has admitted this, and admitted this. He said, and it's quite right, that a big influence on his idea was a movie called The Bat Whispers. It's a 1930 mystery film based on a 1920s play called The Bat. And in this, there's a mysterious criminal by the name of The Bat who eludes police and steals jewels and holds people at, gun, at gunpoint. And he wears um, a domino mask over his eyes. Do you know what those are, Will? Like the one that Robin wears. Oh. That's no. called a domino mask. It domino, just goes, yeah, it yeah, just goes yeah. over the eyes. See, I always call them a robber mask because, you know, the oh, mask old-fashioned well. robbers, robbers wear for some reason. Uh, well, the robber's mask is actually a band that goes all the way around the back of the head. Right, okay. A domino okay. mask... Just is just over the eyes, and you could take it off like a pair of spectacles and put it on. Um, so it doesn't tie on at the back or anything. I, I so never understood how that was a mask to hide your identity. I never understood well, how. How does a man fly? We don't need to know these things. They're just conventions <laughs> of the form. Um, so he wears a domino mask over his eyes, and he has a, a, wings which are really a cape attached to his arms that look, but they look like large bat wings. Um, Bob Kane wanted to recreate this visual image 
but mix it with aspects of the swashbuckling masked Zorro mm. to make the character a dashing and romantic hero. Kane's initial Batman design is virtually unrecognisable from the character that we know today. His Batman wears only a domino mask around the eyes. So his Batman's whole head is completely revealed, including his yellow blonde hair. (laughs) There are not a cape, but bat-like wings emanating from his back that would flap. Um, And he wears an all-red costume. Mm. All red with black pants. I've seen a Um, picture of it, and it's not good. But Bob Kane is only an artist. To get Batman onto the page, he needed a writer. And this is where we meet Bill Finger. Now, Bill Finger was a talented, aspiring writer and a part-time shoe salesman. He had met Bob Kane at a party. um, And when he learned what Bob Kane did, Bill Finger managed to wrangle himself a job ghostwriting some of of, uh, Bob Kane's comic strips. Um, So Bob Kane would sort of say, we need to do a new... you know, adventure of Peter Pop. Bill Finger would write it. Bob Kane would pay Bill Finger, and then he'd pass that script and work off as his own, oh. and say, "I came up with all of this." It's perfectly. It's a. It's a. It's a perfectly standard part of the comic trade at that time. Um, after seeing Bob Kane's Batman design, Bill Finger makes crucial and important changes. It's Bill Finger who suggests giving the character a black cowl that covers the whole head but the mouth. And that the cowl has pointed ears. Bill Finger suggests ditching the wings and replacing them with a large cape that could look like wings. He suggests getting rid of the red costume um, and making the character wear black and grey with a prominent bat symbol on the chest to simulate a little bit like how superman has the symbol on his chest Mm. essentially bill finger is responsible for the enduring design of the batman um finger also creates batman's secret identity the rich playboy bruce wayne who pretends to be a coward and a fop um in much the same way that uh, don diego de la vega pretends in the zorro stories and movies um that were very very popular douglas fairbanks playing the role While Zorro is a clear influence, it cannot be avoided that both Bob Kane and Bill Finger borrowed heavily from a very popular character of the 1930s, The Shadow. The Shadow appeared in Pulp Fiction stories, text only, and radio appearances as well, published in Detective Story magazine. And The Shadow stories lay the entire groundwork for Batman and all the similar masked adventurers and vigilantes who would come out in Batman's wake. The Shadow is a detective and a vigilante who uses a terrifying masked persona as he stalks the night, hunting down criminals and scaring them into submission. He has a secret identity of a wealthy playboy who gallivants all over town. He has sidekicks. He has informants that work with him on the police force. He has gadgets. He has a badass car. Just about all the elements that are central to the Batman's success. Bill Finger wrote the uh, initials, the, the initial script for the first Batman story um, with Bob Kane providing the art. Kane shows the Batman to um, an editor at National Comics called uh, Vin Sullivan. And without 
Bill Finger being involved, editor Vin Sullivan promptly wants to run Batman, make it a feature, put it on the front cover of Detective Comics, um, and he negotiates a deal with Bob Kane that does not include Bill Finger. Um, as Bill Finger is just a ghost writer, according to Bob Kane. Mm. Just a ghost writer. <laughs> Technically, there's no need for Bob Kane to include Bill Finger in this deal. Um, Finger works as an employee. And there we go. Kane, Bob Kane signs away ownership of the character in the same way Siegel and Shush did it with Superman. He signs away ownership of the character to National Comics in exchange for, among other things, um, compensation, royalties, and a mandatory byline on all Batman comics that he's recognised as the creator. It will say, uh, to begin with it doesn't, but but eventually it appears, Batman created by Bob Kane. One name and that's it. And because of the deal that Bob Kane made, Finger receives none of the same recognition or compensation. Batman is a smash hit character from day one. The front cover on Detective Comics of him swinging down with a hoodlum under his arm, <laughs> the costume, the mask, the the cape that looks like wings. It's just sensational. And um, the following year, he receives his own solo title, um, 1940, whilst continuing to be the, the, the feature attraction in Detective Comics. By that time, Detective Comics is the top-selling and most influential um, kind of uh, publisher as they've become... They, sorry, Detective Comics is the name of the comic and it's now become the name of the publisher. National Comics has just gone, we're going to call ourselves Detective Comics from now on. Um, and so DC Comics is the most influential publisher in the industry because they've got Batman and they've got Superman. The two superheroes are theirs. <laughs> they've got their first and they did it and there we go. They're the cornerstone of the company's success and they're the cornerstone of comic book success as well uh, and initially batman is written in the style of the pulp detective stories that were very popular of the age mm. pulps pulp stories written for teens and young adults and this influence is very evident because batman um shows little remorse um yeah he uh he has no real sympathy for for the the gangsters, the hoodlums, and the the people, the criminals that he the, that he fights off. And there's an awful lot of him fighting what would be called maybe mysticism. There are vampires, there are werewolves. There's kind of a lot of this kind of stereotyped, um, racially charged kind of um, <laughs> Eastern mysticism of the time. Oh, like, that was so yeah. comic common with those comics back then, wasn't it? They always had that. Yeah, it features in Sherlock Holmes stories as well. Mm. There's an awful lot of um, some sort of yogi or some sort of monk from the east of the world comes in and has some sort of uh, hypnotic power or this, that, the other. Mm. And then as the 40s progress, pulp stories become less and less popular as comic book stories become more and more popular. DC finds it more profitable and easier to market Batman towards children. So during the 1940s, the tone of Batman changes. It becomes much less violent, much less grim. The pulp overtones are washed away, almost. The Joker becomes more of a prankster and less of a cold-blooded killer. The early kind of pulp portrayal of Batman starts to soften in uh, April of 1940, 
when they introduce Robin, Batman's sidekick or junior. Um, and he's uh, introduced on the suggestion of, you guessed it, Bill Finger. Um, <laughs> who says the stories would be a hell of a lot easier to write if Batman had a Watson-like figure yes. for him to explain his deductions and the intricacies of the plot to. Mm. The thought balloon had not been invented yet. <laughs> the You're the serious? idea, Yeah, the idea of being able to see a character's thoughts did not exist which is why sidekicks were really important, because everything had to be done via speech. Ah, that makes absolute sense. Yeah, I've actually read some of the early Batman comics. I remember the first one. I think Joker basically kills the mayor, if I remember right. Mm. Yeah. So with the introduction of Robin, sales nearly double right from the get-go. Um, Robin is a hugely important part of Batman. Um, the appeal that, they, that that having a child involved has to children audiences is massive. Um, and in the years following kind of World War II, um, DC Comics adopts a very different post-war editorial direction um, where the social commentary of Superman is virtually eliminated um, and both Superman and Batman go in this kind of light-hearted juvenile fantasy direction, which Robin is a big part of. Um, and uh, the bleak and menacing world that the the uh, the Batman stories of the early 40s presented us with are gone. Um, and <laughs> Batman becomes this respectable citizen. He is deputized, a deputized kind of uh, law officer, and he becomes quite a paternal figure with, with Robin there as his almost child. Um, in 1945, Batman and Robin travel through time uh, and have an adventure <laughs> in ancient Rome, something that is you would not believe from reading the very first couple of um, Batman stories. Yeah. And the trend, once you get to the 1950s in comic books, is science fiction in a big way. That's the popular trend. And Batman quickly shifts into that direction. Gone are the gangsters, the killers, the blackmailers of the 40s. In the 1950s, Batman is regularly battling outlandish robots and aliens from other worlds. <laughs> the, the, the popularity of comic books in the 50s was curtailed by a, a moral panic that swept America and Great Britain. Comic books were branded perverse and accused of turning children into and adolescents into criminals and delinquents. <laughs> and some of the criticism was warranted, as we've looked at. There was some very... All comic books were unregulated. There was no oversight into what was put in them. And some of them presented gory blood, violence, and a level of sexuality that's inappropriate for children. And yet mm. any child could pick them up, buy them, and take them home with their Mickey Mouse comic. Um, but psychiatrist Frederick Wertham published a book called seduction of the innocent in 1954 and this led the moral panic and amongst a number of outlandish accusations against comic books Wertham alleged that batman and robin were a gay couple and that the comic books that featured them were trying to in his words not mine trying to corrupt children and push them towards homosexuality there was a massive outcry. There were book burnings um, in America and in England. America, there were special sub Senate subcommittee hearings were convened to investigate the connection between delinquency and criminal behavior in children and the comic books that they read. 
Vertham's work, work in inverted commas, <laughs> is is now widely criticised and and no one thinks anything of it. Um, there's a um, Carol L. Tilly um, wrote a paper on Destruction of the Innocent um, that said that Vertham manipulated, overstated, compromised and fabricated evidence. He is widely discredited in this particular area. Um, and an, uh, quite interestingly, Andy, Andy Medhurst wrote um, a 1991 essay called Batman, Deviance and Camp. And he wrote in that that Batman is interesting to gay audiences because he is one of the very first fictional characters to be attacked on the grounds of his presumed homosexuality. And of course, we need to all remember that these, this kind of witch hunt that took place over things like that in the 50s is of course all tied up in the the kind of the communist witch hunts that would uh, take place where people were blackballed from the industry um the idea of being connected to homosexuality in the 1950s would ruin lives ruin careers it was an incredibly awful time a small-minded ignorant time for everybody mm. dc comics response to this moral panic was to push Batman more into the wacky and bizarre sci-fi area to almost completely remove gangsters from the stories because yeah. that was a big concern to almost completely remove physical violence from the stories. When we've gone back and looked at kind of early Spider-Man and Marvel comics, one thing that I've I've harped on is that there's not a lot of fighting that goes on. There's a lot of tricking the opponent and, and pushing them into a well and. <laughs> You know, something boxed them on the head, and that was all of all of comics. Kind of uh, beyond, you know, after this moral panic came out, like violence had to be really taken out of comic books. And Batman was, um, big, you know, a big victim of this as well. A major recurring new character in the 1950s was a magic imp from another dimension called Batmite, who was Batman's biggest fan, and similar <laughs> to the super Superman villain Mister Mixed Expedilix, Batmite would. Uh, was a small childlike man in an ill-fitting Batman costume, and he would use his magic powers to create strange and ridiculous events so that he could see his hero in action. Um, you just you you would not believe it from reading the first ten years of this character. Oh, but DC's response also was to immediately give Batman and Robin female love interests that allowed them to downplay any homosexual allegations right away. This was a business response. DC yeah. Comics introduced Batwoman to be Batman's new love interest and Batgirl to be Robin's love interest. They also introduced a dog called Ace the Bathound <laughs> who fought crime wearing a little mask. So no one would recognize him. <laughs> recognize the dog. And this group of characters was called the Bat Family, as DC tried to loudly proclaim that they were making wholesome family comic books. Anything you may have heard or read about there being homosexuality or, or any kind of corruption going on is that not look, it was a family. They're men holding hands with women and they have a dog. It's a good, wholesome comic book. Gays don't have dogs. <sighs> Ridiculous. By the time Marvel <laughs> Comics were firing on all cylinders in the mid-60s, Batman's comic book sales are sinking fast. Mm. The Bat family might have saved Batman's image from closed-minded PR scandal, but those kind of stories and elements just weren't appealing to readers at all. The Batman comics 
were handed over um, to the control of editor Julie Schwartz, a towering figure in comic books. Um, we discussed him in the in the Superman episode because he revolutionized Superman, and that came after this. At the time, he just revived and revitalized characters like the Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, um, as well as helping to create the Justice League of America. Um, Schwartz took control of the Batman comics and immediately jettisoned all of the silly aspects of the 50s. The space aliens, the robots, the time travel, all that's gone. The characters like Batmite and Ace the Bathound, gone. Um, and, and Schwartz was also responsible for giving Batman something that would last forever. Changing the look of Batman almost forever. Any idea what it might be? Um, I have no idea. He put the yellow oval behind the bat symbol. Right, okay. For the very okay. first time. A small change, maybe, but it... And also, that's kind of around the time that yeah, the, the, it works so much better on the kind of the bluer bat costume, that yellow oval um, on the chest. That would become such an enduring, iconic logo um, for decades and decades to come. Um, and Schwartz introduced changes designed to make Batman try and feel a bit more contemporary and to try and return him to more detective-orientated stories as opposed to magic imps from the fifth dimension. Um Sales of the Batman comic spiked when the Adam West TV show came out in the 1960s, 1966 that came out. Um, and the comic books tried to keep as much of the same campy fun tone as the TV show. Schwartz wasn't able to move them, the comics into much of a serious direction because it was clear that people wanted to read camp Batman stories, you know, fun-loving, over-the-top stuff. And so he had to go in that direction. That was the mandate from his bosses. So Alfred dies... And is re- or, Yeah, he dies. He definitely dies. And is replaced by Dick Grayson's Aunt Harriet to match the TV series. Um, uh. Barbara Gordon is introduced as Batgirl, the new Batgirl. She was created kind of in tandem, I think. Um, and she may have appeared in comic books first, but the it was under a tv mandate because they wanted a female you know character for the for the tv show mm. um but the tv series ends in 1968 after which batman sales go back to being pretty terrible they plummet once again so in 1969 this editor julie schwartz ushers in perhaps the biggest change in the history of batman stories Dick Grayson is written out of the comics. Ooh. He mainly he leaves mm. for college. He's grown up. He's now college age. He's not a little kid anymore. Off he goes to college. Bruce Wayne and Alfred close up Wayne Manor and leave. And they relocate. They leave the Batcave behind. They relocate to a penthouse apartment in the middle of Gotham City, which would be the base of operations for Batman throughout the 70s um and it's a move the the batmobile changes completely into a stripped back coupe um two-seater it's a move to establish a stripped down back to basics atmosphere after the campiness of the last 15 years had left quite a bad taste in readers mouths yeah and julie schwartz puts batman in the hands of a dynamic new duo that transformed batman in the 70s writer denny o'neill and artist neil adams They'd already made history working together on revitalizing Green Lantern and Green Arrow and ushering in what I've talked about a few times on this podcast, something we call the Bronze Age of comic books. 
The, the mm. Batman in the forties is the golden age of comic books, the yeah. earliest age. The fifties stuff, the silliness, that's the silver age. Gotcha. As we get into the nineteen seventies, we start to get the the, the the bronze age. And Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams were part of maybe ushering that in. The the, the bronze age is typified by darker tones in stories a lot more social awareness and social stories they did a lot of that on green lantern and green arrow um and they get batman back to the character's darker roots dealing with dangerous criminals and violently insane villains they o'neill and adams create race ghoul um mm. they revive two-face and the joker who haven't been seen for years and they make them instead of idiot pranksters they make them major violent threats and badass villains again um man bat is introduced for the first time oh i love man bat another thing that typifies the bronze age the 70s is um supernatural characters coming out like morbius and vampires and um things like that and so man bat fits into that Mm. um denny o'neill's batman is a complex character for the first time ever. Batman in the Golden Age is, you know, he's a guy who puts on a mask and he beats up criminals. There's no psychology or complexity to the character. In the Silver Age, he's kind of silly and camp and weird. Danny O'Neill is almost like the first person to write this character seriously, to to bring a level of sophistication and maturity to try and write Bruce Wayne and Batman. He creates a character full of conflicts and contradictions. His relationship with Dick Grayson becomes incredibly strained. His relationship with Catwoman is is very difficult. His war on crime is portrayed as something akin to like a compulsion. Um, for the first time, we we start to see the trauma that uh, that his his horrible origins have on him, rather than just it's a flashback and here he is driving a car. Now we see emotion being wrapped up in his feelings for his dead parents. Mm. So a darkness is introduced to Batman in the seventies. A darkness introduced to his personality that had never existed before. This 1970s run from O'Neill and Adams is the most influential set of stories in the history of Batman. And it's influenced every movie and TV adaptation that, that followed. They are rightfully known as the men who saved Batman. Because without them, the character could easily have fallen into obscurity. We've seen it happen before. We think the X-Men are, you know, some of the most popular mainstream characters going but they got cancelled <laughs> because mm. the sales weren't good and they you know you have to have a great writer come in and a great artist to come in and save them comic historian uh, les daniels observed that o'neill's interpretation of batman as a vengeful obsessive compulsive which he modestly described as a return to the roots was actually an act of creative imagination that has influenced every subsequent version of the dark knight this is where that personality that we now associate so much with Batman comes from. This is where the character is perhaps interesting beyond the visual flair for the very first time. Mm. The 1980s, as we're coming up to the, this movie being released, is, is easily the most important era in the history of Batman. Yes, at the very, very end, we get this movie. But with the rise of comic book shops, DC Comics is now able to make comic books specifically for older, mature comic book fans in a way they never could before. 
instead of having to carefully balance an audience of young adults and children. So in 1986, DC releases a short story, a short collection of issues called The Dark Knight Returns. Hey. In which writer-artist Frank Miller imagines a future where a grim and violent Batman comes out of retirement in his 50s, doing a dirty Harry impression, and takes great <laughs> joy in causing pain to the criminals who have seized his city. The gorgeous artwork, as well as the intensity of the story, sent shockwaves through the industry. It's a revitalized, reimagined idea of Batman. And it gained incredible reviews from mainstream publications like Time magazine. Mm. And the Dark Knight Returns is incredibly popular, selling close to a million copies, and gets the kind of like reviews by mainstream publications that no regular comic book would ever get. The same year, DC Comics completely reboots its entire universe and timeline in the wake of the crisis on Infinite Earths. And so a brand new continuity is introduced and established for every character, including Batman. And based on the success of The Dark Knight Returns, DC hires Frank Miller to create a new and updated origin story for Batman called Year One, in which Miller moves Batman as far away from Batmite and <laughs> Ace the Bat Hound and robots and aliens as possible and gives him a modern, edgy, urban origin that could not have been further from the 50s and the 60s. Because of the deal Bob Kane made, Bill Finger does not receive any recognition or compensation for this character. He doesn't receive the kind of jobs that you can get if you're publicly acknowledged as the co-creator of Batman. Bill Finger created the design of Batman. He created Bruce Wayne, Commissioner Gordon, the Batcave, the Batmobile. He co-created the Joker and Catwoman, Batman's tragic origin backstory, to name just a few of the contributions he made to the character. And yet he is not recognised as co-creator. As this information became available to the public... When the media was interested in Batman at the 60s TV show, Bill Finger spoke publicly about how he felt he should be recognised as the co-creator. Bob Kane addressed this, writing an open letter in 1965 that was published, in which he says, The trouble with being a ghostwriter or artist is that you must remain rather anonymously without credit. However, if one wants the credit, then one has to cease being a ghost or a follower and instead become a leader. Incredibly disrespectful. In 1989, more than a decade after Bill Finger's death, Bob Kane's trying to change the uh, tract of his approach now. And he wrote, Now that my longtime friend and collaborator is gone, I must admit that Bill never received the fame and recognition he deserved. Ugh. He was an unsung hero. I often tell my wife, if I could go back 15 years before he died, I would like to say, I'll put your name on it now. You deserve it. But the point is, Bob Kane never did do that. He no. never told Bill Finger personally that he was the uh, co-creator. He never did it publicly. In fact, he went out of his way to denigrate Bill Finger, to call him a ghostwriter and a follower. If, uh, Bob, I'm, just give me a minute, mate. 
Sorry. Bob Kane died in 1998 with a fortune between five and ten million dollars. He's buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in the Hollywood Hills alongside the rich and the famous. Bill Finger died in poverty in 1974. The co-creator of Batman died in poverty in 1974 Ooh. and was buried in an unmarked grave at a potter's field because he didn't have enough money for a proper burial. You can always get in touch with us here on Marvel vs. Marvel by getting uh, a, a communication through to us. Um, I don't know what, how I said it like that. Uh, the email is marvel versus marvel at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at Marvel versus Will. What's in the mailbag this week? Oh, what a huge mailbag we have to get through. <laughs> no. Yeah, uh, it's, everyone, it's everyone wanted to talk to us about this, didn't they? Yeah, there was such a big response about Batman. I'm really happy with this. Uh, first of all, Steve Fitzpatrick said, First 12 certificate I saw at the cinema. Second released after the delinquents, if I remember right. I was 13. This film absolutely ruled. When you consider the only Batman on film up till then, widely known at least, was Adam West, and then Chuck Beetlejuice in as the main star, oh my god. Thank you, Steve Fitzpatrick. The delinquents, do you remember that? That was Kylie Minogue's first... Um, on screen, like first movie, I remember it being a big wow. deal because when I was because my sister was a massive Kylie fan, mm. and we watched Neighbours all the time. I thought Kylie Minogue was a massive star mm. um, when she probably was only a star in this country and Australia. Yeah, um, but yes, I remember the delinquents being a big a big deal. Fair. Alice Covington said, "I was nine years old and absolutely psyched for this movie." At the time, I'd only really known Batman from the campy Adam West show, so a darker, more mature version was nuts. The Batmobile and then the Batwing blew my little mind when I saw them in the adverts and in magazines. Although I didn't see the movie until a year or so later when it came out on VHS. One of the most endearing memories I have is the adverts on billboards and bus stops and the like. Yes. It was just the Bat symbol in gold and black. I don't even think there were any words. We visited London around this time, and it was everywhere. That's it, Ellis. Bat-mania. It was everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Tommy Etling loves this movie, too. Uh, it's tremendous. Jam-packed with iconic scenes and lines. It has the best Batmobile. It's got the evergreen Prince soundtrack. Michael Goff is the only Alfred in my eyes. Billy D. Williams is in there. And Nicholson is at his peak, playing the only Joker who actually told jokes. Funny ones the whole way through the movie, even after he dies. The sequel is also immense, but maybe the best thing about it is that it annoys all the grown men who love those Nolan ones. Nolan actually references the electric hand buzzer scene, but replaces that gag with the pencil thing in his movie, as if to tell us, no, we're not taking this seriously now. This is different. No, we are taking this seriously now. <laughs> yeah, exposing himself as a kind of weird pervert man-child who missed the point of the franchise entirely. Thank you, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> CJ Hooper said, saw this on my 12th birthday with my dad, who was even more keen to see Batman, how it should be done, a bit like Dracula. Ever since I was enthralled by the idea of a Batman Superman film, imagine my broken heart, but I, <laughs> I loved this film as a kid and still do. The perfect atmosphere and score. In this case, nostalgia is what it used to be. Happy memories, and yes, best Batman by a long way. 
Not overplayed, hammy, or psychotic, just dedicated. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's another on screen. I don't think, you know, is there anyone better than Keaton doing this? Well, let me think. There's, uh, I don't know, Christian Bale is a bit. I can't voice. stand. I can't stand it, mate. I, I really struggle. <laughs> I just can't stand it. The voice is horrific, and I can't get past the voice. Can't yeah. get past the voice to see anything else. I think yeah, it's, it's stupid. I think he's a stupid man, and it's a, it just spoils the movies for me. Yeah, looking back, I mean, I love the Nola was, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, they could have done something about that voice. Uh, Jacob Hatton said, It's funny to me that the Batman Begins film is seen in popular culture as a calling card of that gritty reboot fad, because to my recollection, Batman was itself the dark, gritty version. It was a 15 certificate in the UK and earned it too. I watched it at the age of seven at that friend we all had whose parents let them watch anything and mum wasn't happy when she found out. Its sequel, Batman Returns, was great as well. I saw it on a plane years ago and my favourite thing is that it's funny. It has great timing and the cast act the hell out of the hammiest of lines. It is. It is it, it's, it's really interesting hearing all this because calling it the dark gritty version it is compared to the 60s but yeah. this movie is camp as hell <laughs> it is it, it is, is funny as well but it's really silly and camp there are dark moments but there yeah there are, there are moments where it just it feels like a reference to the 60s almost i will talk about that later when we get into it uh, Vinois C. Fox said, It was amazing. Saw the film at the cinema, was blown away. I spent weeks after trying to figure out how I could make my own bat suit. I had the trading cards, I had a t shirt, and I really wanted a pair of Batman Joker trainers that were in my local show shop, but mum said they were too expensive. When it came out on video, I ran to our local shop to rent it as happy as a clam, but on arrival at the shop counter was told that I couldn't rent it, as it was, on initial release, a 15, and I was only 12 as I had been at the cinema. So upset. So as it had been at the cinema, so upset. Peter Fox said, When this film came out, it really breathed the new life into superhero movies. The first two Superman films have been great, but things have gone downhill since then. But this came along and blew a lot of people away. Everything was done really well. For a start, there was a great balance between action and humour. If you like either, you will like this. Added to that, it's sheer accessibility. This is something that anyone can watch and enjoy. It's not just for genre fans. You don't have to know the backstories from anything to get it. We rented it on video. The whole family watched it and enjoyed it. The visuals looked great and really stood out as being different, but also right. Nicholson was having a whale of a time and it showed. He pretty much steals every scene and is a worthy foe for Batman. It's no use comparing him to Ledger as they are so different that, that all they share is a name. By playing it straight, Keaton provide a grounded foil to Nicholson's Joker. Thank you very much for that. Um, Peter Fox, are you related, related to Vinoir C. Fox? Two foxes in a row. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> That's weird. Uh, Phil Morley remembers Batmania well. I'll never forget the excitement of seeing the enigmatic Batman, the movie ad, in the instructions for the Caped Crusader game. I had no idea there was a movie coming, and the hype then the hype train really kicked in. News about it being dark and violent, the Stark trailer, the logo everywhere, and then came Summer of 89, a great time to be 12. It was a relief to see the BBFC bring in the 12 rating, otherwise the movie would have been a 15. 
The Prince soundtrack was the coolest album about, and Kim Bassinger, the most beautiful woman in the world. The build-up to this movie's release was intense. Ultimately, no movie could have lived up how I'd built it up in my head, and I enjoyed it, but didn't quite love it as much as I wanted to. Either way, it was certainly an incredible blockbuster in age where such things were rare. Well, Phil, yeah. that is a lesson every child should uh, should learn and to take on board early on. The thing is never as good as the build, ever. Never. Doesn't matter never. what it is. Christmas Day is never as good as Christmas Eve. Oh, yes. Because... Christmas Eve has anticipation, it has hope, it has dreams, it has everything you want, it's just around the corner. Christmas Day has reality, which is that you don't get everything you want. Um, and that's just life, isn't it? But there you yeah, go, just, good to learn life. that at 12. Also, good shout out for the Cape Crusader game, I had it on the Amiga 500. Very hard game to play. Emma Morgan said, I know I've said it before, but for me, he is my Batman. We had this on video, but a lot longer after it came out, as I'm sure I wouldn't have been allowed to watch it on first release. I remember loving its very Burton landscape, that grey-black colour scheme, and of course, all the amazing lines Jack Nicholson got being his Joker. Never rub another man's rhubarb. In terms of playground hype and chatted, and chatted through, I actually uh, remembered more of us being excited for Batman Returns and quoting things from it, mainly Catwoman's lines. Oh, and let us never forget the Scouser from our Vidasen pet in his role as Robber. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. Yeah, I think you, you, you're going to talk more about the second one because the first one is so good, you're then excited for another one. And that's, yeah. that's just kind of always... Like, there's way more talk about Across the Spider-Verse yeah. than there was for Enter the Spider-Verse because... absolutely. We've all seen it, and a lot. There's a lot of new people that have seen it, kind of on 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 demand, and kind of watched it several times, and all that. It's just a, that's how hype tends to work. Indeed, that's a, that's a scientific fact. PJ got in touch. I love this movie. The first time I saw the opening scenes, I thought, "Oh, I see. We're starting right at the beginning." Then, boom! Batman drops in, and it's all been a bluff. My tiny mind exploded. Damn, this isn't an origin movie, and I was hooked. Yeah, that confused me as a kid with the with the comic book adaptation. Mm. I thought that what we were doing was flipping around and seeing a flashback, and then the modern yeah. day, then a flashback, and the modern day. And it, I think it took me a couple of readings. I, I have strong memories of trying to get that sorted in my head and going, oh, I see what's happening. There's I, another couple. I didn't spot that so obviously... Uh, but yeah, I appreciate how that's a nice bit of misdirection because they does look like they're you know that's that's a, it's a retelling of, of of his origin, but it isn't. It's just another family. Dave Fenson also remembers uh, also remembers this. Uh, I was twelve when it came when this came out. I bought it wholesale. I had as much merch as I could get. Walls covered in posters, trading cards, T-shirts. My dad made me a wooden bat logo for my door. The first Saturday of release, me and my pals queued up for seven hours outside the Luton ABC. Possibly canon by the point the, the chronology escapes me. Back in 89, and you couldn't buy advanced tickets. So just stood there with packed lunches, bored out of our minds. Seven hours is approximately nine days when you're 12. Seven hours yeah, is huge, that's man. Huge. That's huge. That's... Uh, 
That's like uh, waiting to see the Queen go past on coronation or something, you know, that kind of wait. Mm. But never had a wait been so worth it. It was my favourite film for several years after. As an adult, I see its flaws. It's not really a Batman film. It's a Joker, Joker film. Burton doesn't care for heroes. But I still have enormous love for the sheer attention to detail in the set design. Anton First was a genius. I, he's a genius. Genius. Certainly a landmark in both comic book and blockbuster filmmaking. I wish I could be as excited about anything in life these days as I was about that movie when I was 12. Thank you, Dave Fensom. And that's another important lesson to learn about things. Excitement dies. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's, like Boxing Day. It's like Boxing Day. That's when the excitement dies after anticipation of Christmas Eve. It's a horrible realisation that you reach a certain age... And you will you listen to me. Come closer to the I, thing you're listening on. I, okay, yeah. You will never be excited again about anything. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> will make you feel excited ever again. Not like when you were twelve or fifteen or nothing. I'm gonna I, see a new gonna see the Batman movie tomorrow or when you're older, might see a boob next week. But nothing <laughs> once nothing will come close to that ever for the rest of your life. Yeah. And uh, there you go. No, I, I had that same thought last night. I went out for some drinks in, in Chelsea and I had a flashback sort of 10 or so years ago when I first moved to London. And every time I was out drinking, I would get these random bursts of excitement going, oh my God, oh my God, everything's amazing. And now I'm just like, I'm just going to have a nice time. I, I, interestingly, I actually got a little, I got a little burst of not exactly excitement, but looking forward to something for the first time in ages. We had a Sunday off from doing the podcast <laughs> and i was going out with friends that i love yeah. it was going to be because the weather weirdly is sunny every day at the moment it's i weird. was like it's going to be good weather i'm and i've had some medical problems that are kind of cleared now i'm going to be able to have an actual drink with friends that i love in the sun on a weekend when i'm not working and i was like i feel it's almost like contentness that's this warm contentness is as much as you get um, there we go. Sometimes, sometimes those moments happen, but you know, excitement, man, it dies. Finally, amusing moose said during lockdown, I sat down with my computer and catalogued the IMDb scores of every movie and TV series. And oh, here we go. Live- He's one of you. One of your lot. Hello. He likes data. <laughs> Animated or live action, Marvel and DC ever made. Once I catalogued those into the years they released as well, I realised that last year, without anything from Marvel or DC was 1991. Just stop and think about that. What, yeah. what, what Amusing News is saying. Yep. The last time there was a year went by without any movie from Marvel or DC. All or does that mean or, t- or TV. Oh, right. Without yeah. anything like that. Anything. Is 91. Yeah. That's massive. That's mad. That just shows you the success of this and why we're delving into it. Just goes to show how impactful this movie was on superhero media. As for my thoughts, while I like Batman Returns more, Batman 89 is really good. I love Jack Nicholson's Joker. While he isn't as groundbreaking as Ledger's, he's still a unique, unique film Joker for having deadly gag weapons. And I love how Nicholson's usually relaxed gaze contrasts with his forcefully stretched smile. I also want to give Knox a bit of love. He's a charming side character that I'm surprised never made it into the comics. Even in the Batman 89 comic miniseries that were written by the guy who wrote this film, he's nowhere to be seen. 
Anyways, I hope I haven't gone on too long, but considering all I had to say about the excellent 1990 Spider-Man finale was Spider Carnage has a beard, <laughs> I, th- I think it evens out. Also, I'm not sure if you planned on bringing up how Lieutenant Urquhart was played by William Hootkins, who also played Jack Porkins in A New Hope, but I guess you are now. So sure, we can do sure. that if you want. We, yeah. we can do that. I know Porkins is a bit of a cult figure uh, on some online communities. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. So, sure. Uh, well, it's because he's overweight and his surname is Porkins, and people think that's a, a hilarious like joke from Star Wars. Uh, there we go. Um, <laughs> man, uh, I'm really, really excited and pleased that we're doing this. Um, mm. We... Um, we invest an awful lot into these episodes, guys. We really hope that you can hear the the, the quality, the attention to detail, the work that me and Will put in. Um, we hope you guys appreciate it. And there's some great ways for you guys to help support us and uh, and help kind of pay us back. Um, there are great ways that you can um, support this community on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. For just the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can help keep this show on the air and help me and Will um, put all the uh, work and effort and time into the episodes that you love to listen to. Just three pounds a month will help uh, help keep things uh, spinning around the old uh, MVM studios. And in exchange, there are tons and tons of great bonus content available for people over on Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Um, there are 72 bonus episodes now available, Will. 72. Mm. Depending on the different tiers you're on. Um, this month, we are releasing a new full-length bonus episode. With Across the Spider-Verse in cinemas right now, we are going to explore and a deep dive into the sequel to the Spider-Verse story, Spider-Geddon. The Inheritors are back, and once again, they're hunting spiders from across the multiverse. Dr. Octopus, the superior Spider-Man, is back in the role, and he's leading the charge in building an army to oppose them, this time recruiting Insomniac Games Spider-Man from the uh, PlayStation uh, universe, as well as Spider-Gwen, Spider-Punk, and a whole host of other Spider-People. That deep dive is released in the month of June, Spider-Geddon. You can also get um, access to all our other bonus episodes. Um, There are 36, currently 36 full-length bonus episodes, 37 when you factor in Spider-Geddon. It's a hell of a lot of bang for your buck. You can also get early access to every single main show, plus you can get access to loads and loads of mini-shows as well, all on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. We've got to give a big shout-out, Will, to the people that really do dig deep and support us. Um, because there are lots of ways you can support us. If you don't have the uh, guts to give us money, if you don't have the intestinal fortitude to do what you need to do, cough up cash for this podcast, um, there are ways you can you can give us five-star ratings, you can leave us good reviews wherever you get your podcasts from, you can follow us on Twitter and tweet about what we get up to, you can share our episodes on social media, you can tell friends about this podcast, you know people that love Marvel, you want to tell them about this podcast, get them listening to it, that's how you can uh, reach out. If you're unemployed and for some reason you don't think you can spend your welfare check on us, which is a mistake, there are non-cash ways you can help us out, but uh, that doesn't count as much as the people that really do the most. I'm talking 
about the world-class wrecking crew, the people that really do the right thing. Peter J, Brandon Schmigilski, Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Basta Beer, Sam, Bindi, Supi, Jack Davis, Billy Brown, Zubair Q. Um, those are our biggest supporters. Those are the ones that deep incredibly dig incredibly deep, give incredibly give deep as well, sure. They give an awful lot and they pay us back. They support this community and they keep us on the air. So a massive shout out to them. Um as I said, patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Get access to this incredible bonus content. Be a part of the community. Support this show. And on the other side of this break, it's going to be that deep dive into Batman 1989. 